0: Good morning, church family. Uh, Let's see. Gotta look out there. See was here with us this morning. (coughs) Sometimes these lights are so bright, especially on the gloomy days, you know. Uh, It's like, before we enter the sermon, just kind of a reflection on this past week and in light of the communion as well. I appreciate those of you who were able to join us this past Wednesday for uh, the memorial service for our brother, Bill Jong. And we laid his body, his uh, remains to the grave uh, this past week and it was a uh, sobering time uh, many it was very encouraging, just kind of just as testimony uh, many many people he knew many people, many people 's lives were touched by him, and it was just kind of it was surprising to me how many lives he had touched and how many good deeds that he had done and it was just in in our world and it was just so amazing that uh, a lot of these uh, as far as I could tell, were people that were un- unbelievers came to give uh, just just to give testimony to uh, brother bill 's life and praise uh, for the good deeds that he did and I was just thinking uh, uh, of his life and how uh, what a what a uh, what a praise to God that uh, here's uh, one of his own uh, doing uh, living his life uh, to do much good deed before the world and I pray that uh, his the good deeds that he did were uh, such that, that many of those who saw his life, knew his life, uh, gave glory to the Father. Uh, but as just reminded, even as no matter how many good deeds we all do, and especially in light of our communion today, uh, it's none of our good deeds will will matter in eternity. None of them ent- bring us into allow us to enter into heaven. It's ultimately all that we have and all that we can uh, we can bring into heaven is that which God gives us, and that God gives us Jesus Christ. And, and I really just thank God for our Brother Bill's faith in the Lord Jesus. And I and, uh, pray that, you know, at uh, the very end, that all of us here, uh, we will not be bringing our good deeds into heaven, uh, but we'll be bringing with us faith in Christ. And let us be bring along with us as many, as many brothers, as many souls with us as we can. Uh, because uh, then in the end, it's what matters, uh, Christ and not faith in him. So, just uh, really, uh, just reflecting upon that truth this morning, uh, as you as we continue to worship God in His Word, I ask you to take your Bibles now to turn with me to the Book of Isaiah, chapter sixty-five. Isaiah chapter sixty-five. And we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at this chapter in two sermons. So we're going to look at it this week and next week. So this morning we'll look at verses one through sixteen. One through sixteen. Isaiah sixty-five, one through sixteen. We pray with me one more time, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Father, as your word goes forth, we pray that your spirit will take your word, teach us. show us these, this, these truths in, in this text, not only its significance for your people in the days of Isaiah, but your people throughout history and your people to this day. Father, may you speak your word and cause it to, show, to cause us to grow in our faith and trust in you. Uh, as a body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray you be glorified through the preaching of it. In Jesus' name, amen. I think uh, many, many of us, as we go through life, have gone through the very common experience, especially when we go through trials, that we have that feeling in our lives, that's, that sense in our life, that, and that doubt maybe in our minds that perhaps God has forgotten about us. Or maybe that God is, is uh, does not care, I know intellectually we would still hold and understand that God does love us, and we intellectually know that uh, we, uh, God has never forgets us because God is omniscient and he 's all loving and all kind and all that stuff but there 's that sense that, that uh, that's kind of a sense of comes out of me some self pity some uh, some sorrow kind of some pre- that preoccupation, that complete focus upon our own selves and the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, that we feel like God has forgotten or God has forsaken him us. We feel like God is far off, that maybe he cares for us, but he's busy doing other things. We may find ourselves asking ourselves, where's God in the midst of this pain? Why is he silent? To my prayers. Why doesn't he take away these things that weigh upon my heart? And this was essentially the line of thinking for the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. God had allowed Israel to go through a series of his disciplinary acts by the hand of the Lord, he had allowed Assyria to take the northern kingdom into captivity. Uh, he, he allowed Syria, Assyria to nearly take the Southern kingdom into captivity as well. He had a promise that Babylon would come one day to finish the job and take the Southern kingdom into captivity for a period of seventy years. in addition to all this, the Lord had revealed that there would be upon after all this a future day of judgment, a judgment upon the nations, a judgment upon sin and as we saw that revelation of that day of vengeance of the Lord, chapter 63 and 64 of Isaiah describe for us a time in the future when Israel, the nation, will recognize their own sin, they will recognize their guilt, and they will repent as a nation. At the end of that chapter, 64, we looked at last week, The very I want to point out to you just the last verse. Israel asked of the Lord two questions. Really, it's the same question. They just ask it in two different ways. They ask, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? In short, they're simply asking, why, why are you silent, Lord? Why don't, are you going to ever do something about this? Chapter 65 through 66 are the last two chapters of Isaiah. And they are God's answer. God answers their prayer, their, their prayerful requests, their questions, their doubts. And chapters 65 to 66, not only are God's answer, but in another way, just as chapters 1 through 5 served as a, a summary introduction to Isaiah, chapter 65 through 66 serve as a summary conclusion, going reviewing back to many of the themes that we saw throughout the book of Isaiah. It's a summary of the significance of the... the a significant portions and uh, thoughts of the Lord's plan of salvation through the Messiah. The Lord is going to be speaking here in chapter 64. He speaks, he speaks as well, 65. And verse 8 through verse 13 emphasize this. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is the Lord's answer. And so we uh, pay close attention to what the Lord says, and speaks to his people in this day. Our text this morning reminds us that when God appears to be silent, and that's what it is, he appears to be silent, the problem does not lie in him. It never lies in him. Our temptation made me think that it's, it does lie in him, but rather, it, the reason that God appears to be silent is because the problem lies within us, within ourselves, and yet he will not remain silent, as we learn in this text, for the sake of his servants, for the sake of his followers. And as an outline today, we're going to look in this text. We see three responses from the Lord to Israel's concern that they that he had forgotten them. So he's given them answer. This is you, they believe, Lord, why do you keep silent? Will you forsake us forever? And he gives them a threefold response, a threefold answer to the question. And in essence, the answer is, no, he will not keep silent. So we're going to look at this text this morning. All right, let's take a look at the first answer to their doubts, to their concern that God had forgotten them. In verse 1 through 7, he says, really, he answers them, I will repay a rebellious people. No, I will not be silent forever. I will repay a rebellious people. In this section, God explains that the reason he is silent is, or appears to be silent, is not because of him. Uh, we would learn in other places that it's because of Israel's sin. They had complained, of course, that they had cried out to him, they had called out to him, they, uh, they prayed to him, but God did not answer. And so he, he answers, and he gives them a correction. And he answers that, really, he, there is a sense he's been silent, but there's another sense where he's never been silent. He's been calling out to them throughout the, their history, throughout their lives. The problem is, that it is they who have not responded. They are the ones who have been silent. And it's because they have not listened to him, they, because they have not responded to his call, God says he will not keep silent. But instead, he will repay Israel, rebellious Israel for their sin, let's begin there. I want to flesh this out in verse. These are verse one to seven. In verse one, we read <clears throat> of chapter sixty-four, uh, chapter sixty-five. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, "Here am I. Here am I." To a nation which did not call on my name. We'll stop right there. The repeated phrase here: "I permitted myself." You see, it happens twice. Emphasizes that the Lord is not hiding Himself from Israel, but rather He's actively been, has been making Himself available to the nation. He hasn't been hiding; uh, in fact, He's been calling out to them. He's been making sure that he, they, He's been able to be found by them, sought by them, to be uh, uh, to be found. But it is in Israel's sinful rebellion. It's in their sin that they did not respond to him. That's the point that God wants to make. God called out without, uh, he wasn't hiding. He was calling them, and and without them ever asking, seeking, or calling upon him, God called out to them. But the problem is, again, they did not listen. Remember, even back to Isaiah chapter 6, part of, but the problem with mankind is that we don't hear, we don't understand. Even though God's calling us to us, even though he sends Isaiah to, to preach to, to Israel, they will hear, but they will not understand. They will listen, but they will not comprehend. And that's the problem with Israel. That's the problem with all of us. We may have ears, physical ears, but when God speaks because of our sin nature, we don't listen. We don't even get it. And so God says, I have spread out my hand, verse 2, I have spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. It's a very vivid picture here, this term, I have spread out my hands. That's used in the scriptures, it's used early in Isaiah, chapter 1 even, of When we pray to God, we spread out our hands in prayer. This is a posture of prayer. It is, it's ironic because God is the one pictured as, I have spread out my hands to you, just that you've been appealing to me. Uh, When you're in prayer, well, God has been appealing to them. But in their sinful rebellion, they didn't respond. Can you picture God praying to you? God calling to you, speaking to you, asking, will you respond well, you respond, God has been calling out, but sinful Israel has not responded. Instead of walking in His ways, they've walked in their own ways. Instead of following His thoughts, they followed their own thoughts. Here's a, a just a simple, concise picture of sin, isn't it? A lot of times we think of sin as maybe some heinous act, or like stealing, or murder, or adultery. But the basic heart of sin, the the, real, the true Essence of sin, the, with the heart of sin, is that simply we choose our own way instead of God's way. We choose to our thoughts rather than God's thoughts. Whenever you choose not to heed God's instruction and do whatever you think is right in your own eye, that is sin. No matter how small or insignificant it, that may seem to you, it is sin before God. Particularly for Israel, who were God's covenant people to go against God's ways, to, go to reject God's thoughts, their sin, because they had a covenant with God, was an act of rebellion to God. It's significant here that these first two verses of chapter 65 were, were quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 10, verse 20 through 21, I'll put it up here for us. We read, uh I'll read it for you. And Isaiah is very bold. Yeah, Paul says, so this is a bold a section, right? So uh, it's significant, he says. This is, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel's rebellion against God made them deaf to God's call. They did not heed his call. But God graciously kept calling. And God's gracious calling went even beyond the Israelites. And as Paul would point out in Romans, they would reach Gentiles as well. Reach people like you and me. Gentiles. Who were saved just like Israel would be saved by calling upon the name of the Lord. Now... Paul also goes on in Romans chapter 10 to emphasize, and as well as 11, to emphasize that it's not that God has stopped calling Israel. It's not that he's forsaken them or forgotten them, even though they had rejected his call. In fact, Paul emphasized that he continues to call them to this day. A remnant of Israelites continue to be saved, but for the rest, for the rebellious of Israel, God will continue to judge. And we come, as we come back to verse 3 to 5 of chapter 65, the description of their sin continues. This is why God continues to judge Israel. Uh, these characteristics, these, these actions, these specific actions continue to reflect Israel even to, uh, throughout the ages. Israel was involved in the pagan worship of other gods. They did not worship their God. They worshiped, and instead they worshiped other gods. We'll read verse 3 through 5. Listen to this description of the idolatrous worship of Israel in, this, in Isaiah's day. <clears throat> A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. That's Israel's worship of idols was basically a continual provocation to the Lord. And, and keep in mind, it's, if you remember earlier in Isaiah, it's not that they had abandoned the worship of God completely, right? They still had the temple. They still had their sacrifices. And they had their holy days, and they were going through all the motions they, they followed through, the, they tried to obey the law in, in that way. But along with their temple worship, they, they somehow thought that they, were, that they were smart enough and that they were clever enough that they added the worship of all the other gods of the, of the surrounding nations as well. It's like, uh, it says they were, wanted to cover all their bases or something, and we see here these very interesting terms that uh, speaking of the sacrifices and gardens and incense on, on bricks or, or maybe sometimes translated tiles, roof tiles. These refer to basically worship of Canaanite idols sitting among graves in, uh, implied a, a worship or attempts to commune with the dead. Even uh, those of you that come from maybe a, 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 like Chinese background like me, uh, we have offer, have ancestral worship we're offering up to the dead, hoping that they would bless us. They, the Israelites, furthermore, they violated the ceremonial laws of God. They ate swine's flesh. They ate other unclean meats. So the whole list of descriptions here in 3 to 5 seem to convey that the Israelites were involved in numerous kinds of idol worship. It was a, a, something called syncretism. that They uh, believed in, in mixing together all the religions uh, sometimes some people do that because they, they think that, oh, it's just, well, I just, I want to make sure I cover all my bases. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Allah. I believe in Buddha. I believe in, you know, nirvana. I believe in all this stuff, so I'm just in case. Some people do this, of course, because they just think philosophically. They say, well, you know, really, they're just all the same. All roads lead to heaven, kind of, of a thought. This was, these are basically reflective of human philosophies, human thoughts, And because of this, they really thought they were being clever. They thought they were they were smart. They thought they were uh, maybe more knowledgeable, more advanced in their religious practices. And thus, as a result, they saw themselves as holier than than thou. Essentially, that's where this phrase comes from. Here, they set themselves apart. They said, "I'm more holy, you than you. So don't don't uh, don't come too near me." But to God, all this false worship, this hypocritical worship was like an irritation, like smoke in the nostrils. So those of us that have been wrestling with, you know, dry throat and coughing, hacking because of the fires, but you know that's just, that's just from fire that's like far away. Imagine being surrounded by smoke continually in your nostrils. It would sear you. It would make you cough and gag and suff- and feel like you're suffocating. To the Lord, that's the description. It's like fire and smoke in his nostrils, a fire that keeps burning, the irritation that that caused. That's, that's what it was before the Lord. And so verse 6 to 7, describe what God's going to do about this, this idolatrous worship of Israel. Verse 6 to 7, we read. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord. Because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into... Their bosom. The phrase here, it is written before me, a picture is basically a royal edict, a royal decree basically that's being recorded down uh, like the law of a king being written down as law. And so God answers to the question essentially. He says, will, and the other question is, will you keep silent? God says, let it be written down, I will not keep silent. But of course his answer is not what they expect. The Lord doesn't say I will I will not keep silent I'm going to rescue you I'm going to answer your prayers. He says the Lord I will not keep silent I will repay you for your sins. The Lord promised to repay Israel for their sins of idolatry, their guilt and their as well as their fathers guilt then there will be assessed and a corresponding judgment will be measured out to them like incense. Can you imagine there's a picture of that same measure of incense is going to be poured out into their bosom. It would receive the recompense for their sins it kind of just reminds us again that God judges us for our, our deeds for our acts even though all of us are born with a sinful nature God does not judge us because of just because, based upon the sinful nature God judges us by our sinful deeds because we do act sinfully we think sinfully we do sin remember Isaiah chapter one verse 28 earlier just the the pro that God does judge sin, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. See, God will not keep silent, he says. I will not be silent, keep silent. I will repay rebellious Israel. Now, for those of us today who may feeling that God is silent, maybe, that God's not seems to be distant or far off, if that is the case, Hopefully, we all will take a closer look at ourselves. Sometimes when God is far off, it's not that he has moved away from us. It's a lot of times we have moved away from him. We've run away from him. We've hid from him. We've chosen to sin. We've chosen to to hide. We've shut our ears to God. We've chosen our own ways. We've chosen to think about our life through our own thoughts. And if we continue in sin then we may be in danger of the same fate of rebellious Israel. Yet, all is not lost for the people of God. All is not lost for Israel. Even though God promises, he says, I will not keep silent, I will repay those who are rebellious. The Lord says also, secondly, in verses 8 through 12, he says, I will not keep silent, I will act on behalf of my servants. I will act on behalf of my servants. Although Israel as a whole is a rebellious people, as they've been a rebellious, they've been in rebellion against God, they have not worshiped Him as a whole, yet they face God's judgment. The Lord continues to call and preserve a faithful, believing remnant of Israel. And for these, he, which, these individuals whom He calls the servants of the Lord, God promises to act. God's going to act on their behalf. And verse eight is the key verse here in this passage. "Thus says the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, you, remember that, you all remember that, I'm sure. God described Israel as a vineyard. He says, You were a vineyard. I, I planted you. I, I watered you. I, I, I took care of you. I made you into this beautiful vineyard place. And I was expecting you to produce good grapes, but what happened? It produced only worthless grapes. And so what did God decide to do? He he destined that vineyard for judgment, even though it was his vineyard. It belonged to him. But here in this verse, we find that in this worthless vineyard destined for judgment, there are actually a few clusters of grapes. This whole vineyard, there are a few clusters just here and there of grapes from which new wine could be made. They were beneficial. Yes, maybe the whole field is wasted, but there's a, you know, if you're gonna burn the whole field and then you see a little cluster of grapes there, what do you do? You say, oh, I'll burn it too. No, you're gonna take that cluster of grapes. you can preserve that cluster of grapes, right? You're not just gonna waste it. You say, oh, I'm gonna just burn every, all the, you're gonna burn everything, a pile of, of garbage, but in that pile of garbage, you see, oh, there's a diamond there. I'll burn it. It's just a small little piece of that garbage, anyways. No, it's valuable. There's benefit. And just as God sees benefit in these, these few clusters, he says, I do not destroy that cluster of grace, for there is benefit in it. And so in the same way, because there is always, God preserves or makes there to be a faithful remnant, a small amount of Israelites who are faithful, God will not pr- destroy all of Israel. God will preserve this remnant. He'll preserve that cluster. He will not destroy them all. He elaborates on this. Verse 9 to 10, and here's this promise to, to, this, to Israel. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, that's uh, also named for Israel, and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. Here again, we, uh, we see uh, the allusions to the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant promises uh, were threefold, if you remember. They were threefold. they a promise of a, of a descendants, promise of a land, as well as promise of a blessing. And here, two of those promises are alluded to, the descendants and land promises, that God is going to raise up descendants from Jacob and Israel who will inherit this promised land, the mountains, his mountains. My mountains, it goes back, these are the mountains of Palestine, the mountains of Israel, of Canaan where Israel had want, had offered worship to idols. He says, these servants whom he preserves, these whom he will call out, are his chosen ones. They are elect. We can understand the doctrine of election. See, all of, and we understand that all, just like for Israel, it's the same for, for people like us, Gentiles today, none of us would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us would turn a faith in God unless God had chosen us. You think of Ephesians chapter one for that these chosen ones are elect by god for salvation they are these servants are going to dwell in the land god will not destroy israel and he will act on behalf of these few servants he will have to save them he will have to give them an inheritance in fact, he will give them the full inheritance. There's two references to geographical places: Sharon and Akor, were basically two valleys on the opposite ends of, of, uh, of Canaan, one on the, Sharon to the west, the coastal plains, and Achor, uh to the east, uh, near Jericho. Together, they convey the totality of the promised land. See, those Israelites who seek the Lord will inherit the land for their flocks and herds, God promises. So in essence, God is not going to destroy all of Israel. He will save those of Israel who seek him. But those who do not, God has a promise. Verse 11 to 12. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy man, who set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter. Because I called, but you did not answer I spoke, but you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. The phrase forsake the Lord here reminds Israel basically of their covenantal obligation to the Lord. They basically had a relationship with Him, a covenant relationship, but they have forsaken him. They turned away from him. Instead of being faithful to him, they forsook him. They forgot about him. Instead, they sought false idols, False idols, they, 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 you see the names of their false idols here, fortune and destiny, kind of just revealing to us why they sought God, their, these idols. They were seeking fortune in their idols. They were seeking destiny, their future in their idols, when all along their fortune and their destiny were in reality bound up in the Lord, their God, who made a covenant with them, but they forsook him foolishly. They looked everywhere else for fortune and destiny when he had already revealed himself to them. So one last time, he lays his charge against them. God has not been silent. He has been calling Israel to repentance and to faithfully serve him alone. But ironically, they were the ones who were silent. They were the ones who did not answer God's call. They are the ones who did not hear God's word they were the ones who did evil and chose that which did not please the Lord. In fact, God will reiterate this charge against them that they were the ones who basically weren't listening to him in chapter 66, verse 4. So I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. They did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. And what happened to Israel the, the, really, the problem of the, them actually not listening to God, though he was calling, is a warning for us today, too. It was a warning for Israel throughout their history. It's a warning to the people of God today. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, then we ought to be asking ourselves, are, are we and how are we following him? Are we heeding his word? Are we living by his words? Are, are we listening to his call? Or are we ignoring his word? Are we ignoring his His guidance? See, God wants us to be faithful servants. He wants us to follow his instructions, his word. We can all ask ourselves, examine. We ought to be constantly examining our lives and asking ourselves, how am I doing in that? Because maybe for the most of us, when we come here to church every Sunday, we all look the same. We all kind of go through the, you know, the, the appropriate uh, uh, liturgy of our church. We all sing songs. We stand. We sit down. We give. We put things in the offering. And we all look that we go to Sunday school class, and then we all go home. And by the, you know, for the, just the average viewer, we say, oh, they're all worshipers. They're all good with the Lord. But the Lord is the one who looks upon our hearts. And not, we may not, the average viewer may not discern the difference, but you know who does? The Lord does, right? He knows our hearts. He knows when we come here and we go through the motion of worship, but our hearts are far away from Him. He knows that we come here we listen to a sermon, but you know, it goes in one ear and goes out the other. God, God can and will discern the difference, and He will act. He will act appropriately. He will act on behalf of those who are His servants. And we see this, uh, this third kind of point drawn out here in, in verse 13 to 16, that God knows the difference. And because he knows the difference, God will divide his servants from the rebellious. That's what his response He will not keep silent. He will divide his servants from the rebellious. He will, he will punish those who need punishment, and he will reward or bless those who faithfully follow him. In these verses, the Lord declares that there are two distinct destinies for the people of Israel, for the Israelites. There's a destiny for those who serve the Lord, and there's a destiny for those who rebel against the Lord. One will be blessed, the other will be cursed. And God addresses his words here to rebellious Israel. When he says you here, he's referring to the the rebellious. And even in this, though, it is almost as if the Lord is presenting two choices to Israel. You can imagine that even though this was addressed to Isaiah, Israel in Isaiah's day, that every time the Israelites would come to this text and they would read it, they would hear it as a presentation of two choices before them. And it's no, it's no mistake that when Jesus came, the most famous sermon that he preached was the Sermon on the Mount. Essentially, that was his point. There were really just two ways, two destinies, two doors, two paths that you must choose. You will choose your way, will you choose my righteous way. And that's the the contrast we see here in verse 13 to 16, where it reveals that God basically divides between his servants. He discerns between his servants and the rebellious. Let's read 13 to 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. There are five contrasts that can be found here between these two groups. They're pretty easy to know. You can kind of just make a chart even if you will. First, his servants will have food to eat while the rebellious go hungry. Second, his servants will have liquid to drink, but the rebellious will go thirsty. Third, his servants will discover joy, while the rebellious will discover shame. Fourthly, his servants will sing with a glad heart, while the rebellious will wail with a heavy heart. And lastly, the rebellious will have a a cursed name. A cursed name that ends with being slain by the Lord God, while his servants will have a new name. A new name. Another name. This so what is this other name? You may, it just makes us curious as we see it. Uh, back in Isaiah chapter sixty-two, verse one and two, there's a reference there. How God spoke that there would be a new name for Jerusalem as well. He will, uh, he will not keep silent. Again, in context of the God promised not to keep silent, He will for Jerusalem's sake not keep quiet. The nations, verse two, I want to emphasize: the nations will see your righteousness, and all kings are in glory, and you will be called by a new name, which is the mouth of the Lord will designate. Jerusalem. And so the. Even the capital itself will have a new name. The people there will have a new name. A new name, or a name basically refers to one's character. That's uh, who one is, the person. So when one gets a new name, it indicates a change in one's character, a change in one's uh, person, one's destiny. It's like how Abram was given a new name, or Abram was given the name, Abraham. Or Jacob was given the name Israel. For the people of God, they will be given a new name. For the Israelites who are faithful, God will transform his servants. He will change them. That's what this emphasis of new name. And we know that there will be a transformation because if you remember the new covenant promises that we looked at back in Isaiah 59 verse 21, uh, I don't have it up here, but you can just write that verse down. God promises the new covenant to place his spirit upon them. He will put his words in their mouth so they will never depart from them. All along, they didn't have the spirit of God to empower them. They didn't have God's word. They would often just literally just go in one ear and out the other, and they'd forget. But God promised, I will change you. I will make it so that you will have my spirit in you. My spirit will dwell within you, and you will have my word, and you will be able to obey my word in the power of my spirit. Spirit." So along with this new name, this new character, the Lord's servants will never go hungry, never go thirsty, be full of joy and gladness. But the rebellious will have a cursed name, destined to death, constant hunger, thirst, shame, and full of shame and heaviness of heart. These two destinies await a future fulfillment one day. And in some ways, they are already, they're still being experienced by Israel, but ultimately they will be completely fulfilled in the future when the Lord returns. verse 16 gives the assurance that these prophecies will take place, that the Lord will not forget Israel, that he remembers them. He will act on behalf of his servants. He will discern the difference between those who are rebellious, and he will judge them, but at the same time, he will preserve those who are his faithful servants. Verse 16, why can he do this, or why will he do this? Verse 16, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. They will all come to pass because the Lord is the God of truth. God speaks it. What he promises, he keeps. The term he is he who is blessed, again is that allusion to the Abrahamic covenant. This is the third promise of the Abrahamic covenant. We saw the promise of descendants, the promise of land, now the promise of a blessing. That God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants so that they would bless all the families of the earth. The one whom God will bless will be blessed by the God of truth. The one who swears allegiance to God will be will do so by the God of truth. God is the one who will bless because and He is the God who keeps his promises. God alone can bring things to pass. That's why they will only swear by him. What's more, the faithful Israelites here can be assured that God will bless them and not curse them along with the Israelites is because God essentially at the end because, says because the former troubles are forgotten, the things that were their, that were their past, their sin, their, the judgment of that sin, the discipline of the gem, they will all be forget, forgotten. They will all be forgiven, if you will, as well. God forgives and forgets their sins. They're as if they are hidden from His sight to be remembered no more. And He does so. How can He do this? Because of His servant, His Son, Jesus Christ. He forgives faithful remnant Israel's sins because the Messiah bore them on the cross. Every single one of God's promises is fulfilled because of Jesus. There's a the passage that Paul uh, states in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 reminds us of this is true, that for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are, yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. And in him, that refers to Jesus. In Jesus, all the promises of God are, yes, they are amen. They are, it is true to the glory of God. And so we just review there of this third point there's two destinies two choices for Israel and both will be fulfilled at the return of Christ on the day of vengeance and to this day in the nation of Israel among the Israelites wherever they are around the world many continue to forsake him many do not worship him they worship they continue to worship the idols of self and other other gods. But God has so <coughs> designed it that there will always be a remnant, a faithful remnant of his servants that he preserves who choose to follow him. And he does so because he has promised to do so and he is the God of truth. So God, in these ways, assures Israel if they would ever open their their scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter sixty five. They will find the answer. They want to, God. Is, if they ever are tempted to think that God is silent, when Israel was in Babylon, they thought God is silent. They would turn to these words. They would know that God said, "No, I will not keep silent." When they faced their, the the uh, the conquest of other nations, when they were under Roman rule, they could turn to Isaiah sixty five. They would remember that God does not keep silent. When they were when the Israelites were suffering through the Holocaust, and they would turn to Isaiah sixty five, they would look to these verses. And they would say. No, God says, I will not keep silent. God has a purpose, a prom- has made promises to Israel, and they, they will always throughout the history, though they have been rebellious, and God reminds them of this, says God tells them, I will not keep silent, and I have not been silent. It is you who has not has been silent. You have not been turning to me. You have not heard my word. You have not answered my calls. The Lord God continues, remains the same today. If rebellious Israel would, not, would just simply look to Isaiah five, they would see the answer. They're tempted to ever think that God, God is not silent. Or worse, like, oh, there is no God. They could look to this passage, and God would tell them once again that I will not keep silent. And I will judge those who forsake me. I will repay the rebellious people. But for the sake of my servants, for the sake of you faithful among you, I will save you. I will deliver you. And I will, in one day, when judgment comes, I will discern the difference between the two. One will go into eternal joy, and the other one will go into eternal suffering. In many ways, these principles apply for us today today as well. The Lord God remains saying he is not silent. He continues to speak to us through his word, that we looked at today, but the whole word of God. He can speak through his gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He calls on men and women everywhere to repent and believe in his son. God is not silent. He calls us to salvation. And like Israel, we will either follow him or forsake him. It is your choice. But if you remember the depravity of sin or we remember that we, apart from God's activity on behalf of God, we, apart from God's activity on behalf of His chosen ones, none of us would follow. None of us would follow after Him. Only when God enables us would we respond. And if God is calling you today, will you keep silent to His call? Will you, will you not answer Him? Will you not believe in Him? I think there's a even I would for myself, those who are who are believers in Jesus Christ, and for many of you out there, this is a gospel message that we know. Even will we keep silent about it? Will we not share it and tell it to others? It's a message that needs to be shared and proclaimed throughout the world. One day it will be. May God use us in our community even that in this way to proclaim his, the gospel of Jesus. That God is not silent. God's not dead, for sure. God continues to speak. He speaks and he acts on behalf of those who are his servants. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these truths. and We thank you that you are God who acts on behalf of your servants. Thank you for being a, though you, you, there is judgment coming, we thank you that you are God of mercy and grace. And you are God who is faithful and true, and you keep your promises, and you will one day come again. And you will dispense judgment upon the earth. But at the same time, Lord, you will deliver your people. We, pray, we continue to pray for your people, your chosen nation, Israel. We pray for their salvation. We pray that you would bring them to a knowledge of your son. Until then, Lord, we thank you that your call extends to all of us, to Gentiles and to anyone who will hear, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We praise you, Father, for this truth. We pray that we who know this truth might be faithful to share this with others. We commit, Lord, our lives, this church, to you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray.